0: Welcome to Creative Peacemail Podcast, a podcast for creatives. I'm your host, Tami Takeishi. Mm-hmm. Join me for compelling conversations with artists, actors, authors, musicians, and other creatives about the impact of the creative and fine arts in their lives and our ever-changing world. Thank you for listening. welcome to Creative Peacemail Podcast. I'm your host, Tami Takeishi, and today I'm joined by Sarah Jesu Dawson. She's a supervising librarian in Portland, Oregon, and also a sewist, cellist, and orchestra board member. Originally from the East Coast, she grew up singing in a 300-voice chorus and thought those days were behind her. She finds instead that the dots on the page are often connected. And friends, if you happen to catch her on social media, she's always sharing some of her awesome creative projects. So definitely check that out from clothes and music and all sorts of things. She's living a very creative life. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome. We're going to get started with who or what led you to the creative field.
1: Oh, boy. I think that there was a... A really strong music tradition in my hometown over in Rhode Island, literally this one man kind of built much of what the classical music structure is in Rhode Island still. And he had a 300-voice chorus, which still goes on. He's retired from it, he being George Kent, but that that chorus still exists. I was in it for about 10 years. It was not always fun. You know, it's hard when it's like spring break and you're in rehearsals all day, that kind of thing. But looking back at it now, I'm really grateful that I did that and had that exposure to that music. I've had occasions to be in my hometown again, and I'm amazed at the cohesiveness. I feel like I could probably put on a black robe and jump in and nobody would notice that I hadn't been there for 30 years, you know, so that... I think, was a foundation of of being involved with music and being, you know, really loving it. I find now that I'm still able to call back pieces that I sang as a kid um, and see the connections to things I'm listening to now, which tend to be more symphonic rather than, than choral. So, and I think that experience also... That was designed to make music accessible, especially for for younger people. And I I think that that has stayed with me.
0: That's fantastic. And you currently play the cello as well right now.
1: Yes, that's that's, i very upfront about being a student. I picked it up about five and a half years ago. And one of the amazing things about Portland is how easy it is to get involved with things. So several years back, gosh, now about 10 years ago, Portland's kind of a, the home base for something called Rock Camp for Girls. And they do a fundraiser for it, which now goes by Liberation Rock Camp, but it was Ladies Rock Camp at the time. So it was grownups getting together with whatever level of experience or inexperience they had with instruments. And over like basically a three-day weekend. You have learned a bit of an instrument, you've formed a band, you've written a song, and you perform it in public. So I did that once and, you know, picked up bass and then kept going with it. And there was another session that they did that was all drumming, and I kept with that for a while. And then I was like, okay, you know, middling. I'm happy, but I'm not, you know, not excelling at these. And they thought, okay, You know, what do I want to maybe do as my next challenge? And I thought, well, you know, I've been in love with this instrument. You know, when I was in that chorus and we had orchestral accompaniment, I fell in love with the cello at like age eight. At the time, you know, I, I wanted to take lessons. There was somebody who was willing to teach and I have itty bitty hands and we could not find a small scale cello in Rhode Island in the late 70s. So that that was that. So, you know, fast forward what 35 years later, <laughs> um, thinking, okay, well, maybe it's time. Why haven't I, you know, not played this instrument yet? So I kind of my neck my next free day, I went and rented a cello, found a teacher, eventually wound up buying an electric cello and then buying my quote real one. But yeah, it definitely feels like the home instrument for me. My drum kit is a little bit dusty <laughs> and the bass guitars are hanging on the wall and they look good, but they, they haven't been touched in a while. It's been, it's been pretty much only cello since I picked it up.
0: Well, I don't blame you. It's such a wonderful instrument.
1: Yeah. <laughs> There's something amazing about having that like, deep, re- you know, well, especially now that I'm playing you know, a, a standard, there is something about having that resonant body like right on you when you're playing i i find it really therapeutic as well as you know rewarding to figure out that whatever is challenging me on it at, at the time
0: you're also a great purveyor of going to concerts do you have any favorite either artists or composers that you really enjoy
1: oh gosh yeah so the rest of the 40 minutes will be no i feel pretty lucky that you know, I live where I do, and I'm able to access a lot of live music. I will say it's it's switched in the past couple of years, and i um you know been going to the symphony and then there's a group of kind of like a little federation of small chamber projects that are mostly symphony musicians, and then I have been going to things with that Portland Baroque had been putting on and I'll, I'll still go see jazz and sometimes some pop stuff, and it's generally the same. Artists I've been listening to since I was a teen, for that. But in terms of composers, I'm really in love with some of the people who are are making these new and vibrant works now. I had this intense pleasure of hosting a chamber music series at work with a group, and their composer in residence was Rina Esmail, who I just I adore her work. She is blending traditional Indian classical techniques and motifs into Western. And it's meaningful on both sides. You can get a lot out of it. I happen to have a little bit of a background, you know, enough of a background with Indian Classical to really hear what's going on in that. And that was really, it was thrilling to actually have her at my library and also attend the performances from the the chamber group that was, you know, focusing on her work. Gosh, huge. <laughs> I, I tend to, you know, when I get this like favorite composers, I, I tend to think about the living ones, despite being on the board of a broke orchestra. I... I've one of the other lucky things about being here is, gosh, I got to see Carolyn Shaw in a couple of things in the past year alone, which was pretty amazing. One of which was literally in a skate bowl, like designed for skateboarders. So, really interesting kind of installation work. I definitely have favorite artists, and I think. Hang on just a second. I need to breathe. I'm not breathing. Yeah, it's okay. Okay. So, you know, in terms of a favorite, I'm a huge fan of Ryuichi Sakamoto, both as a composer and as a performer. I've been actually focusing on some of his compositions, sort of working on them for cello, kind of as a tribute, because I I just appreciate so much what he's he's brought out there. And right now he's in a process of scoring a lot of his tunes, and I, I think it's a bit of legacy building for him. And so I'm taking those and grappling with them. You know, there's a lot of decisions because they're written for piano, for the most part. They're scored for piano. And so, you know, if you only have one hand that's making notes and the other one's making your rhythm, that's a limitation and decisions you have to make about how you're going to interpret that. In terms of other players, I really enjoy, oh gosh, a whole bunch. They're all cellists. Zoe Keating, Seth Parker Woods, Johannes Moser. There's a ton, but those those three are people I've gone to see multiple times.
0: Excellent. And such a diverse list that you've mentioned, some of whom I'm familiar with and others who I'm not. So I always enjoy digging in and getting to know more musicians that way too. And of course you do a lot of creative things. You also sew. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that's going and what sort of compelled you to do that? I
1: think I really, really love fabric. And when I can see a really great Pattern design or a texture or something like that. I I immediately leap into well, what can this become? And it's been pretty gratifying. I'm at a stage where I'm starting to get asked to sew things for other people, which I find kind of terrifying. In fact, this the same day that you contacted me about doing this, that was I think later in the day. In the morning, I woke up to a message from a friend saying, "Hey, I'd like you, I'd like to commission you to to make something like this, but I, I want changes, so I want." you know, I want you to figure out how to, how to do this. And I was like, okay, it's slightly terrifying, but it's something I know I want to be able to do. And, you know, kind of the comfort of having a friend asking you to do it is nice. A lot of my sewing hinges on a couple of things. One is I sew a lot of what I wind up wearing to see performances. And in a way it, to me, it feels like bringing. Creativity to creativity. I can't participate directly with, with what's on stage, but it for me it's a a mark of respect to be a little dressed up, and then to have put the effort in behind that. So that started, gosh, that started a few yeah a few years back. And a lot of times it's I get really thrilled when I can combine fabrics in some kind of way. Behind me there's there's a jacket on a mannequin, and the outside is a denim in this really like lush tropical print but the inside has one cotton that's like all full of books and another cotton that has you know various music instruments on it and it kind of felt like oh wow I can like sew a biography in this jacket I I like the challenge I like when I am sewing I get into that flow state when I was a child my mother did some sewing and at that point that was a more economic Way to to you know be clothed. Now it's more of a luxury because we we have this fast fashion and you know things are readily available and fairly cheap. What that's doing to us as a, as a society and a planet, like take some consideration. So I do like that more drawn out process of you know discovering a fabric, figuring out what I want it to be, how am I going to make that work exactly for my body, and then. You know how does that present once once it's on me? I'm in my sewing room now and I'm absolutely surrounded by a whole heap of thoughts and combinations. And it's not unusual for me to think, okay, well, I have this fabric that's beautiful that I can't I can't get more of, and I think I want to do this with this, but I better do a test run. So I do the test run, and then I'm like, well, maybe it's not that. So the projects kind of multiply like rabbits as a result. <laughs> And everyone does, does in fact show that, but it's still really enjoyable for me. And, you know, I am getting that point where, you know, I just got asked to make something. I took some travel time with a friend of mine and I made her a jacket and it was really, really gratifying to see that it, you know, went on her and, and fit her really well. And, I was able to do things like she is a big fan of octopuses. So I found a fabric with octopuses for the lining. And it's kind of like, you know, it's a little secret. You don't really see that, but there it is. And that opportunity to make something that really speaks to the individual wearing it rather than this looked okay on the rack. Maybe it'll look okay on me.
0: I think that's fantastic. You're able to, your creative side and your logistical side and planning things for people and, you know, doing things that are really special that you cannot find in a store like you said do you see yourself sort of expanding
1: on this in the future you know it's tempting but i haven't i haven't done a lot of pattern drafting i've definitely done pattern adjusting i think i'd i'd like to get into that realm there's some alternative methods of garment construction too that i'm finding really fascinating and an interesting dive into there's a instructor who he was affiliated with the Royal College of Art I'm not sure if that's still um still a connection for him but he's come up with a method called subtractive cutting his name's Julian Roberts and it's such a different way of constructing that I was just like fascinated and when when I first found that I I was just like addicted to sewing things like that in a way you kind of you take your fabrics and you're cutting out really only what becomes your neckline, your armholes. And then there's some other draping things that happen, but it means your fabric falls in the bias and forms all these interesting folds and tucks. And with some practice, it's a little bit predictable, but it's also kind of a little little bit of a mystery what you're going to get at the end. And that's a pretty, it's a pretty gratifying process, but at the same time, I'm also now finding like Well, let's see. One thing I've got on my table is a jacket that I'm really close to finished. I've got to put on the buttons and sew the lining in place. And what I noticed as I'm finishing it is that this shape is being, it's in collections from, you know, fairly high-end couture lines right now. It's like, oh, okay. (laughs) So... (laughs) cool and they're doing you know interesting things with the skirts well maybe i can play with that and see how close i can get get to that or what interpretation i can make out of that at the same time though sometimes it's you know this is a fairly simple t-shirt and i've got a pair of pull-on pants with pockets always with pockets you know and this would be something i'd wear to work having it's a nice range of kind of experimental all the way to challenging i think the most challenging thing i sewed the designer, Issei Miyake, actually had a line of patterns that Vogue printed in the 80s. And I found one of these patterns and, and you know, did a test run and then did the final and it's stuff around the collar. No, That's probably the most challenging thing I've ever made. It has this pointed kind of shawl collar thing going on and a lot of sort of fold. And it's so gratifying to, you know, and I could just pop it on.
0: What are your thoughts on people taking something that's already in their closet that maybe... From a regular store and tweaking it or recycling it in some way,
1: you know, I think that's I think that's great. You know, it's definitely it beats it hanging in the closet and not getting used at all. And to some degree, it's probably a lot of that. A lot of the heavy lifting has been done, right, in terms of the garment construction. So if you're tweaking it a little bit, you you know what you want to add to or subtract or, or how, how else. So a lot of the you know part of the work has already been done and then applying how you see it and how you want to see it is i think pretty a pretty gratifying process so i'm always happy to see people take that on
0: the most adventurous i've gotten is taking old pairs of socks and making them as dust rags <laughs> uh, i uh extent of my skill you know but
1: but they're not going right to the landfill, right? So that's completely valid.
0: Part of the interesting thing about doing clothing projects is picking fabric. Do you ever sort of get to a store and you just gravitate towards something like magically? Um,
1: Yeah, that's pretty much how it happens, actually. And it could be the print is usually it or it's a texture. The jacket that I was referring to, the outer part of it is a wool silk blend that's like brown with little pops of red. And then the interior I used cotton from Liberty who I they're just phenomenal, phenomenal fabric makers. And it's one of my favorite prints they've ever made. It's basically it's nasturtiums but kind of painterly and it's my totally my jam for colors. It's a lot of reds and purples and oranges, little bits of green. So anytime I run into that particular print, I I've bought what I can because not all their prints are eternal. So I have almost like a little capsule wardrobe of things in that print alone just because I love it so much, but I know that, you know, I'm pretty, pretty close to being done with my, my stash of that print. So I have to be careful about what I'm going to do with the remaining amounts, but I, do plan on some kind of skirt that will go with the jacket. It's definitely like the colors and the textures. I'm also a knitter and it's the same kind of thing that it's the colors and the opportunity to combine things. I've got a sweater going right now, which doesn't call for this, but I ombre it through like five different skeins. I did another project where, you know, it was small. It was a, a piece for around the neck, but I wound up using like nine different yarns to get the color effects that I wanted in it so it's a little bit of painting in a way to to work with these you know different patterns and colors and textures
0: if you've been feeling burned out stressed overwhelmed or exhausted the resources and courses at the self-care institute are here to support you The Self-Care Institute was founded by Dr. Ami Kunimura and provides support for individuals and organizations with burnout prevention, burnout recovery, and stress management. I've personally taken a few of these courses and found them to be super helpful, both professionally and personally. The care you give yourself matters just as much as the care you give to others. But if self-care is difficult for you, you're not alone. And the Self-Care Institute is here to support your well-being, resilience, and sense of fulfillment at work and at home. For more information, visit selfcareinstitute.com or go to the show notes and click on the link. I absolutely love and I'm a little bit envious of how creative you are with certain like hands-on activities, you know, sewing and knitting and you also do instruments and things of that nature. But Of course, with the creative process, there comes joyful things and frustrating things. So what is one of your favorite parts and least favorite parts?
1: You know, honestly, I think it's the same. I was looking at this question and really thinking about it. And I think having to slow down to figure it out and get the result I want is it's frustrating, but also really gratifying when I finally get through it. So I see them as both that process, that very deliberative process to get through something is is both a frustration, but also the greatest greatest accomplishment out of it. I think not being scared to be a beginner or feel like a beginner is a big part of letting that creative process start. And I do wonder for a lot of the people who, you know, oh, I wish I did this. And I I wonder if that's what it is, that, that hesitation to be at step one again. I wonder if that, that's part of what's holding them back. Hmm. Could be. You had a whole bunch of questions on like library stuff and and books. One thing I find kind of of funny is I, I can go through a week of work and it feels like, you know, books are kind of the mechanism, but it's really a people kind of field, especially now a lot of institutions, we were closed for a while. And now that we're back and we have people coming in and we have programs again, just this, the sense of joy of of reconnecting with people who want to do this is pretty palpable. But I'll get through the end of my work week very often be like, did I do anything involving books this week?
0: I recently had a music librarian on the show. And just in general, like, I think whether you're a librarian in a public library or a music librarian, just any kind of librarian is like the coolest job ever, like the coolest.
1: (laughs) I appreciate that. I find it kind of you know there, there's definitely people who have that kind of you know feeling about being a librarian it's it's definitely a field where you can be a lot of different things at the same time which is one of the things i really love about it it's it's definitely not a single facet thing whatsoever and you know you can put as much of yourself into it as you wish which is another another thing i really appreciate to me for me i'm i'm supervising a team and so you know making sure that they feel supported to be out and interacting with the public and handling all those kind of competing drains on their attention and time and energy is really, that's my job, <laughs> making sure that they're able to do their jobs. What's
0: one of the most rewarding things about being a librarian?
1: It's the regulars who come in, who you know that, you know, for them, the books may be the mechanism that get them in, but it's they're also in because they're going to have a good interaction with somebody or they're going to see... Or hear something a little differently than they expected to. One thing I actually asked my staff to do was just note that an incident where you're having a conversation with somebody and it actually does not have to do like with a what can the library provide, but just kind of that evidence that we're part of their social fabric because I, I think that's important work that we do is provide that place. And it's not like notes on exactly what was said so much as yes I had a substantive conversation I think that's really important, especially now I'm really seeing how much people want to connect and and feel connected and you know we're we're a great place to do that.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. Libraries, big or small, have such a wonderful way of involving the communities and being enriching the communities, and I love that you mentioned earlier in the episode how you had a chamber group at the library and it's so not only does it intermix the different worlds that you're that you're in
1: i've been joking with my boss that i want my title to change to music director of the library but you know this is one of those things where you know i I have these things that feel like they're a little bit disparate but they're they actually come together really amazingly well i had gone pre-pandemic really very shortly before actually gone out to Rhode Island to see family and had gone to the Rhode Island Phil while I was out there. That landed me on their mailing list, of course. And, you know, fairly soon after everything shuts down, I get this email from, from the Rhode Island Phil saying, Hey, Rhode Island Phil fans, we were offering you a discount on this online Willamette Valley Chamber Music Festival. And I'm reading this thinking, wait, 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 that's over there. I'm over, Willamette Valley is where I am. I, I've never felt so like hyper-targeted by email. <laughs> it turned out it's a mostly a husband and wife team and she grew up, we're geographic opposites. She grew up here and still has family here, but they live on the east coast and she plays for the Rhode Island Phil. They come out here in the summers and they do a series that are actually hosted in wineries. And of course in 2020 had to do the entire thing online. got to know this, you know, group a little bit more. They had their performance, you know, you'd watch the stream of the performance and then they'd have kind of a a Zoom party with attendees, but also the musicians and very often the composers. And what I saw was that this group was really intentional about bringing in women composers and composers of, of color and putting their pieces side by side by, you know, canonical works. I thought, yeah, that's really, I'm really interested in what they're doing. So I asked like, okay, you know, next year, hopefully we're doing things in person. Would you want to do something at my library? Oh yeah. Let's talk about it. And then, you know, a little while went by and I was like, okay. And then suddenly I get this email, like, this has been sitting in my drafts. I'm so sorry. We'd love to play these three dates. And I was like, okay, three. Okay. Okay. Great. (laughs) So we started the previous summer and had these three Friday mornings and at the time, we had just reopened the public coming in, literally did these concerts like outside of our, our building on the plaza. We weren't doing programs inside the building so much. And it was a lot of people who were like, oh gosh, I've missed live music. I haven't had live music and I really miss this. The second year that we've done it, it was, you know, almost double the amount of people and so gratifying families with young kids who, you know, that it's a challenge to get out to a concert, you know, there's childcare and, and this and that, and the other, and seniors who you know have mobility or access issues or you know they're on fixed incomes and not able to pay for performances to be able to bring that to the community and, and see this wide range of people you know high school students who study these instruments and are getting to see professionals right in front of them it it was really it's really gratifying and we're, we're already like talking about next year. Um and I, I love the fact that it, it feels like I have a resident chamber or <laughs> group for my library. It it's really, really gratifying that's, to be able to that's that. fantastic. It's just one of those things where these things connect, you know, and I don't know if I would have gone to the Rhode Island Phil had I not been in that choir <laughs> years earlier. To be able to connect those 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 points has been really, really great.
0: It's always nice when when all of the everything converges nicely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What are some of your sort of creative goals in the next few years, whether it's with your work or personal creative goals?
1: We opened a makerspace in my library about a year ago. And so seeing how that's been adopted by the community has been great. We're kind of ready to start more, you know, kind of another layer of programs besides drop in and learn how to use this. I'm really excited to see where that goes. I'm interested to see what happens with the kinds of materials we're offering. We have a library of things, so people can, they can check out a theremin. That's so cool! <laughs> and, you know, bring things home that they can be creative with. And I, I feel like there's a thing in libraries where we're always terrified of the phrase the future of libraries, because that means somebody is doing a presentation at a conference that <laughs> may or may not be great. but. I think just keeping open to what the community is going to respond to and and thrive with is professionally really, really gratifying. My creative stuff, yeah, I think I am ready to start thinking about drafting my own patterns and seeing how they work on other people's bodies. Musically, I think I'm going to be mapping out with my instructor pretty, pretty, there's a lot of the canonical things that I haven't touched yet. Maybe it's time to start getting some of those under my belt. My, my method has usually been like there's instructional pieces just, you know, to get a technique or get more fluidity in the figure fingers or something like that. I've been pacing myself extremely slowly through the box sweets because, well, it's like the sourdough of cellists, right? Like everybody mm-hmm. was sourdough for a while. All the cellists were playing the box sweets, but you know, I'll play a bit, I'll get it to a certain level, I'll leave it for a bit, play something else, I'll go back to it and realize, okay, oh, I see this now and I see that now. So I'm using them more instructionally (laughs) than anything else. I worked on a solo cello piece from Rena Esmail called Varsha, which I fell in love with. It's interesting because somebody has finally put it into a recording on cello, it just came out like Friday. (laughs) And to listen to somebody else play it and be like, okay, I play it slower, and there's areas that i emphasize differently but yeah actually i'm doing okay with this piece i keep blending those kinds of instructional and standards and contemporary pieces i think it's probably time to start mapping out you know some of the larger compositions and concertos i don't have like great ambitions to like you know join join a group or necessarily even perform in public or any of that it's mostly internal gratification for that mm-hmm. but i'd still like to get to another level with it
0: do you have any dream pieces that you really want to play
1: i'd like to play britain i have real fond memories my mother's actually from the same town as snape maltings and the, the aldborough festival That—that that is my mother's hometown i feel this nice connection to it I, i'd like to have some of his works under under my belt, so to speak.
0: Joy in the journey, as they say.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then there's the other part of my life where I'm I'm a board member. <laughs> I think when I I've been on the board now for just over a year, and I think my first reaction was, "Wow, I'm really a grown up now." <laughs> um, when that happened, but the Baroque Orchestra that I'm with, we've had the retirement of our longtime artistic director, Monica Haggad, who is just a fabulous and leader. So now we're in that process of finding our next person. And of course that process is normally a little more subtle, but when you wind up shut due to a pandemic, there's there you lose that ability to be subtle. So that's happening. We have some other leadership things that we need to figure out, and I'm, I'm really excited to see where we go. Uh, I find it like a, a unique challenge to keep historically informed performance, keep it fresh and interesting. I'm excited to see how that's going to progress and have a little bit of a hand in that.
0: As a fellow Baroque lover, I'm so glad to know that there's groups out there across the country that, you know, are exposing people to Baroque music, whether it's played with authentic tuning or modern mm. tuning, just exposing people to those pieces and that that beautiful time period in terms of, of music.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love it, but I also love I love people who are playing with it and interpreting it in slightly, you know, different ways as well. I, I'm musically maybe all over the map.
0: We mentioned that you like to do a lot of different creative things. Do you have any specific nugget of advice for someone who wants to dig in more or start with getting into a creative hobby?
1: I think spend a little time observing people who are doing it, but also the only thing that's telling you not. That you can't do it as you. So being open to you know being a beginner and knowing that you're going to some sense of progress, however you know, and that 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 timeline is when you're starting as an adult. <laughs> you know, it's in competition with a lot of other adulting kinds of things you have to do um I'll never have an 8 hour practice day it'll just never happen that's fine I don't know how much better I'd be if I if I did I maybe I'd burn out pretty quickly I'm not sure but the fact that I this is something that I can do on a daily basis for you know however much time I get um and then the next time I can hear oh yeah I figured out that little passage and this is this is what it is to be satisfied with those incremental growths I think probably the advice I give like don't don't expect this to you know Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Not rushing past you.
0: Yeah, that is excellent advice. You know, really savoring and soaking in the learning that's going on.
1: Yeah. Cause it will. It will bounce back in some other avenue. <laughs> Just I can't tell you what that's going to be. That's very different from for every person, but it, it definitely will.
0: What is a favorite library that you've visited?
1: Okay, first of all, I, I love my own. <laughs> we we have. An amazing amount of stuff in my library that, that that's pretty unique. Over the past year, I've gotten to visit two what are called membership libraries. So they're not fully tax-supported libraries. There's one in La Jolla that actually have a music series and they have an art gallery. And part of me was like, okay, would they notice if I just stayed here and just became part of the um, started
0: working. <laughs> yeah, just
1: started working. I also saw a, a historic one in, in Newport, Rhode Island over the summer. It was amazing to walk around and see, you know, they, they very proudly put their history on display and like the original set of books that their founders donated, which are under lock and key and really in terms of information value. They don't need to come out of the cabinets at this point, but it was sort of amazing to walk around and think, okay, this is the library. I work in a library. These buildings feel so very, very different. It's amazing that we use the same word. I've been to Seattle's main one, which is kind of an architectural marvel. There's the central library in Stockholm, which every time you see some article about libraries and they're showing a curved wall of books, mm-hmm. that's from that building. I think what was gratifying there was to see, yes, architecturally, it's, it's a wonderful building, but it's being used as a very normal library. They're not just here's the architecture oh by the way we're also a library it's a very living breathing you know story time is at this time in this room with this amazing mural kind of place so i tend to when i when i'm in a more standard library i'm looking for things like you know what kind of programs are they putting on what do their print pieces and their publicity looks like is there anything about how they've laid out their space or their signage or things like that you know that i can that I can borrow. So, I mean, the books are going to be kind of similar unless it's a special specialty library. I'm kind of looking for how did they make this place feel and how are they talking to their community and what what can I learn from that?
0: Excellent. Are, Are there any libraries that are sort of on your bucket list to visit? Not
1: really. When I travel, I tend to look at like what's the live music I can go hear and what's the museums. I may or may not go to the library and bookstores I know lots of librarians who you know automatically go to the bookstores and I, I find actually I get a little bit of anxiety when I do because what they have on the table is new is something that I read about like four to six months ahead of and order, probably ordered for my library when it's there like oh this is new did I did I remember to order this you know I, I'm it's not relaxing oh, <laughs> for me, that environment I'm wondering if I've you know made the right decisions um, I, I'm still buying all the adult nonfiction. At my library. I'm better off with bookstores knowing exactly what it is that I want rather because if I go in and browse it just that difference in time between learning about a publication and having it as part of your collection in the meanwhile you've learned about more stuff that's coming more stuff that's coming and so when you're you're faced with something that's new but in your head it's six months old already it's not fun (laughs) for me I don't enjoy that (laughs) librarianship does change your relationship with books quite a bit I think a lot of us go into the field because, you know, we were strong readers growing up. I know for me, choir rehearsal was twice a week, well, Mondays and Fridays. And then of course, over the weekend, but the public library in my hometown was across from the church where rehearsals were. And the choir master very, very wisely rehearsed the boys choir first, because you don't want those bored kids running around your undercroft which meant, you know, I had an hour and or so. And so I was at the library until it was time. And I, sometimes I think that's how I wound up as a librarian, (laughs) having that sense of, of space there. They've renovated that library because they had to for for ADA purposes. But when I was a kid, like all the adult nonfiction was downstairs. I knew where the art books were. I knew where the mythology books were. I knew where the architecture books were. You know, that was my playground. I still think that, you know, that that feeling of this is my place to go and explore is probably what led me into the field.
0: That's really wonderful. And it sounds like it created some great memories. Yeah.
1: I do remember like... I'm, I'm old enough that at the time the library gave out different youth and adult cards, and if you had a youth card, you were, you know, restricted to the youth collection and adult card, you could check out anything. There really was not young adult literature at the time. I remember my parents having to go and argue to get me a full access card because my reading level was, you know, able to support it. I remember going through the adult fiction, like pretty much alphabetically. Which you know, so I, I gravitated to science fiction mostly, but it was all all blended. But I, I remember, you know, picking up Asimov and Bradbury and Frank Herbert and but since we were doing things alphabetically, I, I read The Handmaid's Tale when I was about thirteen. Maybe not the wisest choice of, of age to read that book, but I think definitely gave me that sense of yeah, there's power in these stories. It's not just, you know, passing time.
0: Did you have a specific favorite book that you would return to reading?
1: I ate through the Dune series when I was in middle school, or at least all the ones that existed at that point. Really kind of fascinated with it. And I I find it funny now because I still, I'm terrible at watching movies. I still haven't watched the new (laughs) adaptation, but there's some iconic, iconic things in those stories that I still can recognize when people are, are talking about them. It's pretty rare for me to, reread a book i always have a fairly ridiculous to be read pile i also give myself a lot of permission to not finish like get a taste you know if something drags me in and i have to finish it that's that's wonderful that's absolutely wonderful there's a lot that i'm gonna get to my like i, I try to give a book about 30 pages to convince me to read anymore but i've let go of the guilt of not finishing cause Um, it has to get back on the shelf for other people to enjoy.
0: (laughs) What is the biggest sector of creative arts or the library field that you're curious about right now? Mm, Um, I think
1: people's relationships with these institutions have changed. Partially from being closed during the pandemic and people figuring out where these fit back into their lives. I've heard from a lot of people who feel like they can't read as much other people who deep dive into reading. And what we know right now, like statistics wise at my library, we have fewer people coming in the door, but we have almost the same amount of material checking out, which means our super readers are back. Our more casual readers haven't figured out how to re reintegrate us yet. We need to figure out how to talk to the people who aren't coming in the door as much. I think that's actually happening in the performing arts as well. There's, you know, maybe I'm a super listener, so to speak, because I'm at a concert maybe once a week. Uh, oh, and there are other people who, who aren't feeling comfortable yet about going into the hall. So I, I think that challenge of reconnecting is definitely present in both both spheres. You know, we've had some luck and opportunity in being able to do things online, but I know once you start having you know, both in-person stuff happening, then that—that's where you need to put your capacity towards. It might be slightly easier for performing arts, if, you know, to have the thing filmed, but I think for the people who really missed it, that—that isn't quite as gratifying as being able to see it live. So,
0: we're gonna leave with one more question, and it's the hallmark one. And it's in your own words: What does living a creative life mean to you?
1: I think it is finding the connections and the integrations that the learning and discovering and mastering of a skill is something we should all be trying to do and that it's going to bring a lot of depth and enjoyment and yeah and just plain joy to the other parts of your life that that it does not live siloed
0: excellent i love that is there anything else you'd like to in part to our listeners before we go
1: in looking at some of the the prompts and questions of this there is describing myself in one word it's unabashed i just i don't see the point in spending a lot of energy hiding enthusiasms and just just living with them and expressing them is a it's it's fair to yourself it is so much easier to find community when you do that and you're not hiding that and you know who, who doesn't want to live with you know, joy. Don't be scared of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Sarah, it has been an absolute pleasure getting to know you and being able to talk more about your wonderful and creative passions. Listeners, please check out the show notes and give Sarah a shout out on social media because she's really doing some amazing things. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Like the show, have a question, stop by the Facebook and Instagram pages. Links are in the show notes or search for creative piecemeal podcast on social media and click follow for all the latest.